this is episode five of the Sue Smith Serious Injury Podcast. And today we've got a team full of in-house serious injury lawyers from Sue Smiths. Joining myself, uh, Sharon Banger, today is Kashmir Opal, as always. And um, we've got Sarah Cunliffe and Simon Towler. Um, the focus today will be on um, the overlap between uh, personal injury cases and clinical negligence claims. Um, and we thought it'd be a good introduction for us to be able to speak about the instances in which this overlap happens. And um, Simon and Sarah have actually been working on a case where the, it's happened in practice and, and are going to give us some really interesting details about the case in itself and why it's so important that we consider both aspects of the claim when we're pursuing these cases. Initially, I, th- I thought it'd be great for myself and Kashmir to give you a bit of an idea as to the instances that this can happen, because it's appreciated you may not all be aware that um, it's possible for to run a PI and ClinNeg claim together. And um, joining me in doing that will be Kashmir. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy our podcast, which is about the overlap. So the general situation is where there has been a road traffic accident and a person suffered an injury or the person's been injured at work um, and they then need medical treatment for their injury and they go into a hospital or other clinical environment and unfortunately the treatment they receive is negligent, which makes their injury far worse. But the general principle is that um, unless the negligence amounts to gross negligence, then you pursue a claim against the original tort visa, for example, in a road traffic accident, that would be the negligent driver. An incident of uh, gross medical negligence would be, for example, where a person injures their right leg in a road traffic accident and that injury requires the right leg to be amputated, but they go into hospital and they negligently amputate the left otherwise healthy leg. So that's generally how we've dealt with these types of cases. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, actually, I think in preparation for the podcast today, what we've realised is that um, that is definitely the way that it, it happened traditionally. And I think moving forward, there'll be many cases where that approach is still uh, acceptable and, and is the norm. But um, Simon and Sarah will actually be um, giving some interesting information as to how this has happened, in how the situation has been dealt with in practice, which there seem to be have been development. So today's podcast will be a, a really good learning experience for existing practitioners as well as people new to the area, because uh, it appears that the way in which um, the rules are being interpreted and implemented practically is is somewhat different from the the gross negligence principle. So if we go straight into the case details, um, I understand it was uh, initially a personal injury case that was pursued by um, Sarah. And uh, Sarah, due to the the way in which we all collaborate at Shoesmiths, um, got the input from Simon as and when it was needed with respect to the Clinegg aspect. So um, I think it's just a, a fantastic example of the way in which we operate at Shoesmiths and the fact that we have that ability to pick up the phone and and get that input straight away. And um, it, it's something that other firms who perhaps don't have a personal injury and Clinegg departments aren't able to do. So Sarah, if you could just please introduce the, the, the case and um, what happened, please. 
Yeah, of course, Sharon. So uh, a few years back, a lovely gentleman came to me following an accident at work. Um, he was a heating engineer and was doing some work on a boiler and he was using one of those um, galvanised bands. Now, the difficulty with this band is that when his employers gave it to him, it was in a box, so it wasn't in English and there's no instructions. So as he pulled on the band on the boiler, unfortunately, the band, the band unwound itself and struck him in the eye. Luckily, he wasn't on his own at the time. He had a, a workmate with him. So he called an ambulance and was rushed to the local hospital um, where he was seen very quickly. And it was initially established that the, the, the damage to his eye was extremely severe. So he underwent surgery and actually in the end has had quite a lot of, of operations. And we were um, asked by him to intimate a claim on his behalf against his employers, which we did. Fortunately, the employers admitted fault or liability pretty early on, although did allege that his actions in some way contributed to the accident. So we proceeded, as we always do in post-injury claims, to get some medical evidence and to get details of his losses. Unfortunately, due to the severity of his injuries, we had to commence court proceedings because a three-year time period was coming up. And again, at that stage, the claim was pursuing completely and solely against the employers. So we commenced court proceedings. Uh, we proceeded as we normally do to a uh, what we call a directions hearing. And at that stage, the defendant employers jump up and down and start making noises that actually they think that there was some blame by the hospital, not only the initial hospital that he went following the accident, but he also had subsequent treatment at a second hospital. And they alleged that the treatment at Hospital 1 and or Hospital 2 was so negligent that it broke the chain of causation and that actually they wanted permission from the court to amend their defence because they didn't think that they should be responsible for the whole extent of this gentleman's injuries. And just to put it into context, this gentleman um, subsequently went on to lose the sight in his eye. Uh, we managed to get him some treatment to uh, have a prosthetic eye put in and he actually couldn't work in the same capacity that he did. So his claim was quite substantial. So understandably. Sarah, how old was this gentleman, just to put that in context of losing your eye at that age? He was only in his 40s, so he had quite a lot of his work life yeah. left. Um, and obviously there was a risk as well that the sight in the, the remaining eye would deteriorate. So there's always a risk that he could actually in the future become completely blind. That's, so that's a very significant injury, having <clears throat> excuse me, a real impact on his life. Yes, it was. So when obviously the defendants are jumping up and down saying that they, you know, they want to amend their defence, at this stage, our medical evidence and the expert that we'd instructed hadn't made any suggestions that any of the treatment thus far from hospital one or two was substandard. So naturally, we opposed the application for permission to amend. That application proceeded they did get permission. So we felt we had no alternative because obviously this was a gentleman that had done nothing wrong acting in the course of his employment to join the hospitals, both of them into the proceedings. And this is then where Simon comes in and we collaborated together to make sure that we got the full amount of compensation that this man was entitled to. Because ultimately for him, he wasn't concerned as to which one of the three, you know, paid his compensation yeah. as long as he received the full amount. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point for any of the listeners who aren't completely um, up to date with how this area of law works. It's not that we're saying that the compensation would somehow be more. It's it's the fact that 
the, the, the parties that are paying will be essentially dividing however they choose to divide the, the compensation out between them. So for a claimant, um, it doesn't make any difference to the value, but obviously it, logistically it is something that we have to deal with. Um, and I suppose in your case, Sarah, it's just unfortunate that it came up quite late on um, from the defendants. Yes, it was. But fortunately, you know, we had the in-house experience that it didn't prevent any delays and we could still get on with the case. Um, what we did have to do, however, with Simon's assistance was to get further evidence on the allegations that the defendants had raised. So I'm sure Simon will interject here, but what, one of the first things that we did was Simon actually looked at the records and looked at the care at both hospitals. And then we decided that we would send letters of claim out to both. Simon, do you want to tell us about your specialist skills in analysing medical records and how you found the evidence? Um, yes. Well, I must admit, when Sarah first uh, mentioned this case and we started looking, uh, and I've sort of been brought up in the, it has to be gross negligence to break the chain of causation. I didn't think the defenders were going to be successful, which shows you just uh, how much I know. But um, <laughs> and, but if the defendants and the employer's defendants are making allegations, you can't just ignore them. You have Absolutely. to follow them through. And as part of being a clinical negligence uh, specialist, we do get to see an awful lot of medical notes. And we do, if you like, forensically go through the medical notes to try and pick up on uh, things that look to us uh, as if they, they're they not panning out correctly or the treatment uh, has been in some way uh, below a reasonable standard. Um, and so it was based on that uh, and my knowledge of the notes that, that we sent the letters of claim to the hospitals. I mean, subsequently, apart from that case, um, I've had a case myself where uh, a pedestrian was injured in a road traffic accident and caused uh, and was caused a brain injury. And during the course of treating that brain injury, the hospital caused significant damage to the foot. And we're proceeding on the basis we're claiming against the hospital for the foot damage, and claiming against the road traffic act insurer for the uh, head injury damage. Um, and it seems that that's indicative. The courts are, are more likely to see negligence caused by hospitals as something that the hospitals should be responsible for, uh, especially if they can separate out you know, the, the brain injury and the foot injury in my case. So it does seem to me the courts are moving to try and separate out injuries caused by various different defendants as uh, moving away from the gross negligence uh, position. It's particularly like in your case where the injury for the road traffic accident was to the head. And the patient goes in and, and it's it's the other end of the body that's injured by the, the hospital's negligence. Yes, although there will still be things that you that where both injuries uh, affect the client in overlapping ways. For example, um, their effect, the effect of the head injury and the effect of the foot injury on employment prospects, on yeah. activities of daily living. So, and that's why if you are in that situation, you have to make sure you settle both claims at the same time uh, to avoid defendants playing, you know, playing one off against the other. Really, you have to to make sure that the actions are consolidated if they're separate actions. And was there a situation whereby, in the road traffic accident, there was only a percentage um, liability settlement, so there was a, a shortfall? Yes, that's true. Um, in this particular case, uh, because the pedestrian started to go across the road 
um, it was agreed there was a 75-25 split in the claimant's favour. So that was another reason why we wanted to explore the, the foot injury as a separate uh, claim, if you like, uh, because we could get, we hoped to get 100% uh, of the compensation for the very serious foot and leg injury, uh, as opposed to getting seventy-five percent uh, of, the, of the head injury. And in your um, experience, is are there any kind of other benefits of pursuing or at least entertaining both areas of law um, in terms of clinic and PI um, from the perspective of a clinic solicitor? Yes, I think there are. Um, with a personal injury case or a road traffic accident, occupies liability, employs liability. Nearly all, I would say, uh, the major insurers uh, and the claimant's lawyers sign up to the rehabilitation code. And that's an excellent uh, agreement between all the parties, whereby without, uh, and Sarah will know more about this, but without um, emissions of liability, both parties can concentrate on involving an independent case manager, seeing what treatment is, is available, because the sooner the injured person can get treatment, the better they are uh, at getting healthy. The claimant wants to get healthy. It's much better for the injured person to get to, to recover from their injuries, no matter how much compensation you get for them. And of course, the insurers have a vested interest because the claim becomes uh, you know, less expensive to them. Uh, the quicker someone recovers, the less the claim is. It's a crying shame that the NHS do not sign up to the Rehabilitation Code. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that Rehabilitation Code, Sarah? Well, as Simon said, the aim is to try and get that injured party the, the need or any treatment that's uh, identified at an early stage as quickly as possible. The quicker that treatment is received, the better chance that that person has of getting the recovery. So, for example, what we do if somebody comes to us and have, um, for example, a serious road traffic accident, we can get a case manager instructed that can go and visit that person in the hospital or in their own home to identify do they need any treatment, any aids and appliances, any help with applying for benefits, etc. And it's getting that case manager in as early as possible, which unfortunately is just not possible in, in clinical negligence claims. And I think the other um, thing as well that sort of is the advantage to a, a PI element is that it's a lot easier to get interim payments. So in the case that Simon and I worked on, we managed to get quite a few interim payments for the gentleman, as well as access to early CBT, because obviously his injuries have a significant impact on him psychologically. Yeah, and that's that's one thing in clinic cases. It's often the case that you have to wait till you've got a, a clear admission of liability before you can you can get an interim payment into place. And sometimes, um, through no fault of the claimant or their representation, it it that can be some time afterwards. Um, and all these things that you've just mentioned, Sarah, are are still needed by um, claimants in that situation. It's just they're not in a situation that they can get that, um, which I often find quite interesting because if you think about some of the services that can be provided on a PI basis, it's with the right thought that the NHS could actually set themselves up because they have the resources um, uh, and they have the expertise. It's just a case of them not choosing not to adopt that position and approach. Um, but it's, I think it's just really interesting as to the fact that you get that on P with PI claims. And it, it, from a Clinneg perspective, as, as a Clinneg lawyer, um, it certainly would make me think um, twice if there is any PI element to a case to, to make sure that we get that into um, and get that into place for our clients. Um, 
And I think that what it demonstrates, uh, as I was saying before, is just one example of, of the many examples that there are that have, as to how issues with serious injury are set up to deal with these types of situations. And some of those things that you will have said, Sarah, you may even have got some input from other departments as well with your clients. And it's not just the PI in Clinic, and, and there will be future episodes that are um, focused on that. Um, how did you kind of find the, the relationship worked with um, Simon and, and when you've contacted other members of the Clinic department, how, what, what has been the benefit for you having that all in-house? Well, I think because we all work very closely anyway um, within the team, uh, we, you know, we, we discuss cases uh, on a regular basis and Simon's always at the end of the phone, you know, if we're not in the office um, and the client obviously has two points of contact or you know we don't say to him oh you can only contact me about the person you claim assignment on the clinical negligence we talk to each other regularly about the cases um, and on for example some cases it does go to other teams so following uh, significant injuries psychological injuries we often find that marriages can break down so we can refer in-house to our um, family team um, and other cases, for example, if it's a fatality and there's uh, any probate that's required, again, we can refer it in-house. And because we have the, the depth of knowledge within the team at Shoesmiths, it's quick and easy to refer and our clients, it's seamless for them. Yeah. And it gives the clients the reassurance of that specialist team, don't they? Because they know, they know us they, and they know that um, our colleagues are, are experts. I just wanted to go back on one point and ask you a question. Have you had situations where... Um, a person is injured as a result of um, an accident at work and um, they're very reluctant about bringing a claim against their employer because they're concerned about the ramifications for them in terms of their job. Um, and they say they'd much rather pursue a claim against the hospital who've also unfortunately been negligent in the manner of their treatment. How, how do you advise um, a person in that position? We just we, we can't make the, the decision for the person as to who to sue, but what you have to do is go through the pros and cons. So you would need to set out the advantages of going down the person injury route compared to the advantages of going down both routes at the same time. And, and quite often, I think it's a myth that people think that if I put in a claim against my employer, I'm going to get sacked. They're going to treat me appallingly because what the injured party has got to remember that it's not the employer that's actually paying out. They will have insurance. So once you explain that position to a client to an injured party actually they are more uh, responsive and, and all they want is to get their life back so if that means that they can go down the pi route get some uh, rehabilitation some help and assistance i've not had one yet that's that's reluctant to do so yeah yeah i mean i, I think it's really important that they know that that they're not going to lose their job if they bring a claim against their employer. Um, and as I say, I think a lot of people have real concerns and reservations because of that fear. Yeah. I think another concern sometimes can be, is is this just going to complicate the matter further? And I think what Sarah and Simon have said is that sometimes it's just a case of we have to go through the process because it could mean that they lose out later on, especially in, in their case where um, the defendants raise it themselves. So um, it, it's really important we give it some thought um, along the way and, and, and pursue it if, it, if we think that it is a, a definite issue that needs to be pursued on behalf of our clients. I, I think that's brought us to the end of the episode today. Thank you so much, Simon and Sarah, for providing your very useful insight and to Kashmir. Um, we, I think this is an issue which will most likely develop as time goes on, but I think there've been some really good lessons learned today. And, um, 
whether you're an existing practitioner or a, a new client, I think there's something to be learned about the process and and how it all works in practice. Thank you. Thank you, Simon and Sarah. It's been really interesting and thank you for um, clarifying everything and hopefully putting people's minds at rest. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.